This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. South Africa's health system had more than enough problems before COVID-19. High prices and over-servicing in parts of the private sector, poor service delivery in much of the public space, and massive inequalities between the two. And now the system is under more pressure than ever. Will that pressure rip apart what is already frayed? Or will it force us to confront weaknesses and face failings in ways that might drive us to create something better? Welcome to Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. It's brought to you by Kaya FM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. I'm John Perlman. In our seventh episode, will fighting COVID-19 divert resources and attention and undermine our battles against HIV AIDS, TB and childhood diseases? Could the crisis help build bridges between private and public health that might lead to greater health care equity in the future? And are we learning lessons about working faster and smarter that might leave the health system better equipped to meet South Africa's needs? Two guests join us for this discussion. Professor Sharon Fon is Professor of Public Health at the University of the Witwatersrand. Professor Fon, nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Professor Steve Reed is Chair of Primary Healthcare at the University of Cape Town. Prof. Reed, welcome to you as well. Good morning, John, and hello to listeners. Let's start by looking at where things stand now. We have also then been taken through some of the areas which we needed to uh, attend to, particularly in the last discussion. We wanted to make sure that uh, the issues of infrastructure attended to, which today were uh, demonstrated. Secondly, we raised the issue of uh, uh, getting additional human resources. Now, I've got a report from the MEC that they've employed uh, over 800 nurses already in the, within the past few weeks and that uh, they're also going to be finalize the numbers of additional doctors beyond what was done earlier this year, which is basically to prepare our response to, <clears throat> to deal with this particular pandemic. That was Minister of Health, Dr. Zweli Nkise. Professor Fon, one of the things that's come out of this health crisis is that we've seen cooperation between departments that might never have worked together before on a health endeavor. Water and sanitation comes to mind, even transport. Is this something that we might build on in the future? Might we locate our health efforts much more squarely in a multi-departmental effort? John, this is one of the concepts of health in all policies. And I think it's been one of the big positives that we have seen. In fact, um, we wrote a letter recently published in the South African Medical Journal making this exact point, that we have seen intersectoral action trying to deal with um, this particular crisis. But the point we made in that particular article as well was that the crisis of inequality, for example, is as big a crisis for South Africa. And we need health in one in all policies for this as well. Just think of what uh, Dipsloot looks like. You know, if people weren't living in those kinds of conditions, they wouldn't be at risk for this crisis, for this epidemic. But they also would be less at risk for many other things. And this notion of health in all policies is one that encapsulates exactly that um, and is one I would strongly advocate. Just staying with you, Professor Fon, I mean, are you fearful that if we get back to something post-corona, that everyone will go back into their separate silos and clinics will continue to try and provide health services without having uh, a secure supply of running water? 
I think there's an enormous risk risk of that. And I think we've seen that in the education sector. You know, this debate about when to open schools and should no schools open until all schools are adequate for everybody. There's a real potential possibility for some positive movement here where actually we start investing in the development of South Africa as an overall activity across all departments. It's something I think that we saw as, I believe, as an intention in the reconstruction and development program. And I suppose it's a resurrection of that kind of thinking. And we certainly need general development across all sectors for the improvement of everyone's living conditions, employment conditions, income earning possibilities, their education, and all of this would be good for South Africa. And if the post-COVID world could move us towards that, then in a way, this is not going to be only a negative effect in South Africa. Professor Reid, I mean, you work in primary health care. We've seen important roles for community health workers. Is that something that is a move in a positive direction? And if it is, what role might they play in uh, a much more equitable health service in the future? They're absolutely important, John, in the development of the health system, particularly in a national health insurance system. But I, I think that we need to recognize that the aspiration of a single health system will remain an aspiration until we have some of the get some of the basics in place and i think that's what the nhi legislation intends to provide us with the the framework within which to build a more equitable health system so there's a lot of wishful thinking i think that we will come out of this better and better equipped to deal with you know what sharon has explained as the social determinants of health but i think we need backbone of the health system to be uh, not just a legislative framework, but a way of working that emphasizes primary health care as a fundamental approach in, in everything that we do right across the whole health system. Sharon Fon, the relationships between provincial health departments and national, I would imagine, have always been complicated. Has the fact that they've had to work together under such a high degree of pressure brought any clarity to that that might provide at least some bones on the skeleton of a, of a better system? I'm not sure I'm the most informed person to tell you about that in fact, but I'll give you my opinion. Um, you know, part of the problem is that national is involved with policy yes, and provincial is involved with implementation. And so often what you'll have, have at national level is we'll say, okay, here's the policy. This is what you have to do. These are the things you have to deliver. But the province sits with a finite budget. And I think that that's where the breakdown. So I'm not sure that they had, don't have a meeting of minds, but I'm not sure that they have a meeting of resources. Um, so let's assume a totally efficient, wonderful provincial healthcare system, which I don't think really exists anywhere. Yes. But even so, um, you know, one of the debates that's going on right now is, you know, the contracting of private beds for treating corona patients. Um, the it's not clear quite where the money's coming from. And if it's coming out of a provincial budget, national can say, right, we've got these agreements, but the provinces have to find the money to actually pay. And I think that's where the breakdown comes from. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily um, going to be resolved by, you know, 
talking together more often. Um, and the the MINMAC meetings where all the um, MECs of health get together with the national department, these are these are difficult spaces. Um, and sometimes um, political interests trump necessarily good decisions or health interests. And, you know, one of the things we've seen is with the Office of Health Standards Compliance, the ministers, the provincial um, MECs have been unkeen for that data to be in the public domain because their province might not look that good. Um, and so I'm not sure the Office of Health Standards Compliance necessarily has the teeth and the independence that it needs. And these are the kinds of tensions that exist Um between provinces and between province and and national. And I don't see an an easy solution to that. And I don't know that that the epidemic is necessarily going to change that. Prof. Reed. Yes. I could come in there, John, just by contrast, that uh, in a a country like Brazil, um, health is a local government function, not a a state or provincial government. So uh, funding flows directly from federal level to local level and the provinces are merely have the uh, task of monitoring you know the 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 outcomes of of the interventions so uh, that brings the uh, implementation of health services much closer to where people are and allows for greater community participation and control of what happens. Uh, so if waiting times are too long, uh, there's somebody at a local government level who uh, is answerable. Um, and that's been, our, I think, one of our dilemmas in this country, that uh, we haven't capacitated lo- local governments enough to allow those functions to be taken on uh, at a at a level as was originally intended um, yes. at a level closer to the people. Sharon, let me ask you about the labor relations, I suppose, uh, the HR relationships within the health system. Obviously, the importance of nurses and hospital workers in general have really come to the fore of the public mind at, at the very least, given the risk that they're facing. If we look at a post-corona health system, does their status and their reward increase as a result of what they've had to put on the line during this pandemic? Or do we go back to the old conflicts? And if so, how could we avoid that? I think there's been a lot of discussion about there being an inflection point in the world around how we value different contributions of different kinds of people to society and questions raised around that. And I fear that this will be lost very quickly. If you look at the income of CEOs of big companies who do very little in relation to daily care, and you look at um, domestic workers or nurses or anyone else, I'm not sure we're going to see a massive shift in society around that. I also think that the other big problem that will push us to not make big changes is that the fiscus is just under the most enormous pressure. So ideally, yes, I think people like teachers and nurses should be earning more. And I think that some of the people who earn massive salaries should be earning less. And I think that inequality fundamentally is, the degree of inequality is massive and that should change, will it? In my most optimistic moments, I really hope it will. In my most realistic moments, I think it won't. Professor Reed, I mean, I want to... 
return to something I mentioned in the introduction. Does this build bridges between private and public health? And does it lead us down the path of greater equity that the NHI has, uh, is meant to deliver in any ways that we can build on post-corona? I think that's a really important question, John. We've seen unprecedented uh, collaboration between private and public sectors uh, over the last couple of months, uh, and particularly in efforts like the Solidarity Fund and uh, Business for SA and various uh, uh, initiatives that uh, have had people working together as never before. But as I said earlier, uh, this will... Uh, fall apart unless we have a framework to um, to bring it together. We need uh, the political and legislative uh, um, uh, backbone of this uh, new way of working to be put in place. Um, and although crisis is always opportunity, uh, I think there's a long, slow slog of work to be done to, to create a fairer and more equitable health system. Um, and this has been, I mean, the, the point is this has been done in other middle-income countries, countries poorer than ours. Um, it can be done, in other words. Uh, and, and I think we need to look at international examples uh, to see exactly how. Sharon Fon, I mean, same question to you, but phrased slightly differently. I mean, you've uh, looked extensively at uh, the, the the nature of the private healthcare system in South Africa. Do you see the crisis that the pandemic has brought upon the country as a shedding some light on how those pathways between private and public can be built? But secondly, has it revealed perhaps some pitfalls going forward as we try to build something that's a little bit fairer? You know, fundamentally, it's just much too easy to make money in the private sector. The private sector is serving um, a very small proportion of the population, and it's a finite proportion. It really hasn't changed over a long period of time, yet more people enter it. There are more beds. There are more private practitioners going into it, and they're making money. How are they making money? They're making money because they are over-servicing and they're charging too much and some combination of those. And as long as you can easily make money in the private sector, people will go into it on the supply side. And so one of the most important recommendations that came out of the health market inquiry was that we have got to manage the supply side much, much better. And once it becomes a real choice um, that I, you know, people want to have a certain standard of living and whatever it is, yes. let's, they make the right decision for themselves. And if it's easy to do that in the private sector, that's what they'll do. But if it means that they also have to work in the public sector to do that, then that's what they'll do. And so the incentives are all wrong, and we have got to change the incentives in the private sector. Um, it just can't be that easy to make money there, and it is. And so a lot of the regulation of the private sector is essential to create the right kinds of incentives, to make people want to work in an integrated system. Um, and I suppose that's one of my fears, is that I recognize that the government is 
right now completely busy and has nothing can think of nothing else but in the nhi i think that to create the framework that steve's been referring to is a two-part process it's both moving ahead with nhi but it also entails regulation of the private sector and i'm afraid the private sector has been very very poorly regulated up until now um, and that effort has to go in. It is a lot of work and it's, as Steve said, a slow, hard slog. But I believe it's essential. Uh, without that, I don't think we're going to have a meeting of minds or of how people spend, where people spend their time. I want to focus, Prof. Reed, on uh, priorities that may be falling backwards uh, in our list as as we deal with coronavirus, let let's start with for something fairly basic: the the immunisation of children against childhood diseases. Is there a risk that as people try and stay away from clinics, as kids are not assembling in places where they might be reached, like schools, for example, that we could, for example, be at risk of a measles epidemic? Absolutely, yeah, that's a huge uh, worry. It's not the only worry, but it's one that uh, has been prioritised. Uh, over others uh, that the uh, immunization uh, program needs to uh, needs to continue despite schools being closed it it's largely uh, run in uh, w- with children under school age so it depends on mothers or caregivers bringing small children to to clinics and most people have uh, understandably preferred to stay away so the the stats are way down and that's a huge uh, a huge concern. And then there are other concerns uh, largely about chronic diseases, um, non-communicable diseases, which of course are major risk factors for coronavirus disease itself. So um, uh, the, uh, the other major burden is, is trauma uh, that has, we've seen a, an uptick after the uh, um, release of the, the um, alcohol ban and and so all of these things are coming back uh, uh, to to haunt us um, after, and you know really focusing on this one disease uh, to the exclusion of these other priorities. John Pullman is exploring the impact of the COVID nineteen pandemic on the trajectory of political and socio economic developments. Couple of philosophical questions, Sharon Fon, you first. The, the fact that we have a, a health crisis that has had such monumental economic effects, might there be the positive spin-off that uh, people in our society who have money might take investment in the health of everybody as opposed to the areas where they can make money from investing in health a little bit more seriously? Might, might we see a mindset change amongst the rich and powerful? Um, from your lips to God's ear. Um, Yes, maybe. Um, Certainly among some people. Um, You know, it's hard to understand people's motivation, but I would say the push to make money is what motivates um, people who make money. And I sincerely hope there would be a change. You know, what has been interesting, um, Steve mentioned about the degree to which people have been working together. They have. Um, it's been remarkable. Have they built trust? And the degree to which they've built trust, I think, could be a positive thing. But I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, they might be polite to each other face to face. Are they still, what do they say behind each other's backs? 
Um, and the same with um, could we imagine people seeing valuing things differently? I really hope so. It seems to me that that could be a positive outcome. I'm not sure I'd hold my breath. So let, let me tell you why I ask it in this particular moment, because I think never before has the interconnectedness of health across class and where mm. people live been so pronounced. And yeah. so this thing where you can say, um, those are diseases of the poor, and you wouldn't say that in polite society, but you make decisions based on that assumption. Mm. And you kind of leave that part to government, and you go about your business, and, and you look after your own health in the framework of your, of, your li- of, your, yeah. of your lifestyle. And, and, and so I'm just wondering, perhaps, Steve Reed, you want to come in on this. Is this going to force governments to look at it differently, but also investors, whoever they may be, to say, hang on a moment, if we don't look at the overall conditions under which poor people live, we may find our factories shut. Mm, absolutely. It comes down, I, I like to use the word solidarity, you know, to what extent we see ourselves as a, a whole nation. Um, the, a common response to this pandemic is to retreat into our silos and hope that the storm blows over and that we'll be able to to pick up the pieces afterwards. And what we're, I suppose, hoping for is that uh, once the storm has blown over, we actually remember the degree to which we are mutually dependent. So I take inspiration from the global movement of investors, for example, to uh, move investments away from fossil fuels. You know, that's a major sort of global shift uh, that is probably over the next 20 years going to really cause a uh, um, significant change in the way that uh, that we uh, produce greenhouse gases, hopefully uh, uh, positively, and it's 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 a movement which is which is gaining uh, gaining ground and really having significant uh, impact. Uh, and in the same way, I think that uh, if we are able to see ourselves as part of the whole and not not in our, our individual silos, but uh, mutually dependent. You know, this this whole where you, we started this this uh, conversation was around the issues of inequality. Yes. It's the single biggest threat to us as a society. It's why we can't actually uh, um, move forward as quickly, for example, as some of the uh, Southeast Asian societies have, is because we, we're held back by this major issue of uh, societal inequality and lack of a social compact. Uh, and that's hopefully what uh, we need to realize uh, coming out of this, this pandemic, that uh, we are inextricably dependent on one another. Sure. I think, John, there's two points in relation to that that I think quite interesting. The one is, I think what's been clear in South Africa and internationally is the role of government. Um, we we know there is a role for government. It's bailing people out. It's bailing out the private sector, and it's there to support poor poor citizens. And so, suddenly, people are reevaluating the role of government. Um, and so that's a big change. The other thing we've seen is there's been an enormous amount of criticism of the private sector sitting on its money and not investing it. Um, and what we've seen is, is, for example, the kind of money that's gone into the Solidarity Fund um, and other ventures is to say, OK, here's money for the public good. 
Um, and I think the degree to which we can be accountable for how that money is spent, how those decisions are made, the degree of transparency around that might encourage people to continue having an open mind to the notion of a social compact. Um, and so the institutions that hold people accountable seem to me to be very important. Um, and perhaps one of the important things for government to do is to make sure that those institutions are well-staffed, well-functioned and free of political interference um, so that they can do their job because they have a long-term effect on the degree to which we can trust each other in society. Uh, and so I think that that is one of the things that could potentially come out of this that could be very positive for the future. Steve Reed, we've seen that uh, beds and ICU units can be set up very, very quickly. We've seen uh, a lively public debate about what a face mask should cost and a bottle of hand sanitizer should be priced at. Can we build on this? Because health spending in the public sector has been massively inefficient and government has overpaid for all sorts of things for many, many years. Does this reset the clock in a way that might mean we get better value for our health spend in 2023, for example? Yeah, and it's interesting when you actually look at the figures uh, per capita expenditure on health. Um, it's possible to put them on the same page, uh, private and public, uh, in terms of <clears throat> reasonable uh, costs. So when we talked earlier about regulation, for example, uh, we need a, a, a costing index that is agreed across the board. Um, because in in uh, private business, you know, the, the, the price is what the consumer is prepared to pay. Uh, it's not a fixed thing. Whereas when we, we're dealing with tenders and government um, procurement, uh, the, the cost is up front. And that's what we need. We need and, and where it's been done before in, in other countries is where that's been very tightly controlled. Costs have been very uh, clearly uh, publicized. Uh, prices have been, have been um, uh uh, published and uh, that has been the uh, foundation on 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 which the collaboration is built. And uh, when you when you work it out in terms of the inefficiencies in the public sector, and I must say uh, a lot of the inefficiencies in the private sector, uh, it's actually uh, they're not so far apart as yes. as you might think. Um, so we've been working, I've been working on a, a number of projects around this idea of community-oriented primary care where uh, a team of health workers is responsible for a circumscribed population of people. Let's say there's 10,000 people in a, in a particular community in a, a, a clinic uh, with a doctor and four or five nurses and uh, uh, 20 or 30 community health workers. You know, you can cost that out. Uh, it's quite feasible. Um, and actually, a lot of the GP practices that uh, on the old model are, are enormously inefficient uh, when you look at it uh, rationally. So uh, taking a hard look at the, at the numbers makes, makes these things actually look quite feasible. Sharon Fon, are we going to reach a point um, where we're looking at 
drawing all the lessons that we might from the pandemic and we've got a brave new world in our sights, but what we're faced with is a system that is completely exhausted and exhausted in resources, but more than that, exhausted in spirit. Does this have the potential to absolutely drain the fight in key people in the in the medical uh, in the medical field, be they at the top level in ministries and heads of hospitals and and at the front line like nurses and hospital porters? Is that a real risk that that we're going to slump to the ground in a reasonably exhausted state? I think it depends how people are managed. So, for example, um, it's really important to acknowledge what people are doing. Um, I've I've been surprised at the certainty with which people have been able to criticise decisions that are made. Um, of course, we should discuss them and debate them and debate them fiercely. But it's not easy to know exactly what the right thing is to do, um, simply because we don't have all the information at our disposal. But I think that it's enormously important to celebrate what people are doing and the effort that is made. For me, I think that a lot of people have been exercised by this crisis by wanting to contribute, by wanting to be involved. And we've seen this at multiple levels in society. What we need to be doing is capitalizing on that and um, harnessing it. So I do think the risk is there. And I think the way to um, not run into that brick wall is to acknowledge what people are doing, celebrate what they're doing, um, and then to provide the forums where the less exhausted people can be involved in a greater way. Um, We need to see, again, the embracing of community activity, um, citizen activity, um, development of new NGOs, um, and embracing of of different kinds of partnerships. Um, So I think the risk is real, and I think it is somebody's job now to start thinking about that and working out how we manage it differently. Steve Reed, a related question, given that that Mm. you're in a university, as is is Professor Fon. I mean, as health professionals face probably the greatest personal risk to their health uh, based on them merely doing their jobs, uh, certainly that I've seen in, in, in my lifetime, might we see fewer young people wanting to be nurses, doctors, lab technicians, etc.? No, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, my ex- my experience has been, and we've got the our final year medical students back, um, and uh, I, I've also been volunteering at the Cape Town ICC, where they've set up you know a field hospital, and the spirit amongst the largely junior uh, young staff is just uh, inspirational. Uh, people are there and have put their hand up because they want to be there. They want to be part of the solution. Um, and that is, ironically, one of the attractions, I think, of of going into a, a health profession is that you really feel you can make a difference uh, now and particularly now more than ever. Uh, it's possible to, to make a, a tangible difference. So... Uh, I don't think we're all going to collapse in a heap, uh, yes. John. And um, <laughs> I'm glad I, to hear that. <laughs> uh, quite the opposite. I think this has been actually galvanizing. When I yes. when I go into the ICC and I meet with the, uh, a team of six young medical officers and a family physician, they they just uh, they inspire me uh, with the energy and enthusiasm and concern for the patients and the families. Uh, and it's it's not easy work. I'm not. I'm not saying it's it's 
it's a breeze. Uh, people are very, very sick. Uh, there have been a few deaths, and and they and they're difficult. Um, but it's meaningful, and it's uh, uh, it it is making making a difference. And I think that's the uh, very attractive thing about um, about entering the health professions. Sharon, basic tools of the trade for people, particularly in the public health space. Um, the public, I think, had never heard the three letters PPE before this came along. But any young nurses, uh, and we've had them on our, on our radio shows at Kaya from time to time, will say we don't have those basic things, gloves, masks when we need them and so on. Does this raise the bar on what health professionals in the public sector ought to be given um, to a point where the bar will stick there or... Does something else have to happen, maybe legislation, to ensure that they, they, they get not only the respect they deserve, but the protection they need? So um, there are certain things that you have to routinely do, and we often don't routinely do them. Right. Um, so, for example, you'll remember the deaths of neonates in neonatal hospitals. And actually what the problem was there is people weren't washing their hands properly or often enough. Um, and all the facilities were there. So I think the opportunity now um, is to reinforce that and also change the curriculum. Um so there's a real sort of focusing of the mind on routine stuff that always should have been done. As far as um, personal protective equipment goes, um, you know, in the legislation, it's always been there that it should be there. Right. Um, uh, so, and I mean, you don't always have to wear masks and we won't always be wearing masks in future. But yes, we do have to get that stuff out. But I'll go back to actually what I think part of the problem is, is that the supply chain isn't working properly. And it's that same supply chain that wasn't delivering the drugs. So I go back to like making the basics work, because if the basics were working, there's money sitting, for example, in the Solidarity Fund um, to purchase PPE. There's money the Treasury's put aside to purchase PPE. PPE. There are some international problems around um, supply at that level, and that is a different kind of solidarity that I hope will change in the future. But um, it's the supply chain. Where do you need it? How much do you need? And um, how do you get it there? And those are the things that we fall down over rather than wanting than the desire to get it. People want to get it there. There are resources yes. to get it there, but our systems are slack. Steve Reed, I mean, a big part of, of the national response to this has been community mobilization in various ways. Look after your own health, be considerate of the health of others and so on. Mm. It's potentially a resource for us dealing with other kinds of health problems. Clearly, you wouldn't have that level of mobilization. But if we are mm. to build on a, a, a heightened public awareness of health in general and mm. a heightened awareness of your the role you might play in your community's health in particular – what would we need to do to turn that into something that we could use in a positive way? Well, uh, this is all in the area of health promotion and uh, uh, people taking responsibility for their own health. So uh, what we've seen, for example, in patients admitted to hospital is, uh, you know, it's quite a crisis when you face your own mortality. Yes. And part of the, part of the reason for people being in hospital is because they've let their diabetes go or they haven't paid much attention to exercise and diet for the last few years, uh, even if they've been taking their tablets, um, you know, uh, uh, high uh, uh, levels of obesity and, and uh, sedentary lifestyles suddenly are catching up with people. So, so the crisis here is that 
um, people are realizing their own responsibilities and nobody can do it for you. Um, uh, the doctor can't, uh, can't uh, force you to eat particular diets or force you to exercise. You've got to take responsibility for that yourself. And that goes across the board. Um, so Ooh, I, I have would... to interrupt yeah. and say that's a tiny part of the story. And the rest of the story is to be in an environment which allows you to make healthy choices. Yeah. So, for example, if you have a look at the distribution of Coca-Cola adverts, um, they're very close and more of them are around um, primary schools in townships. Mm. Um, mm. So there's a whole lot of responsibility beyond the individual um, that I think is very, very important. And there are a whole lot of levers. And we've seen yes. people trying to use those policy levers, the sugar tax, um, the legislation of salt in bread. So Steve's right. An informed population who know what the healthy choices are is absolutely essential. But they've got to be in an environment where those healthy choices are cheaper and possible. So it's very hard to blame a diabetic who has to get up very early, travel in public transport, come to work, get home late, um, to then also do some exercise and have a healthy meal. Um, so there's a bigger picture out there. And I think that all the health promotion research has shown that individual knowledge is very important, but creating a healthy environment that makes healthy choices right. possible is so much more important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. In, in conclusion then, Professor Fon, as we look at a South African health system post-corona, what's your highest hope and what's your darkest fear? My darkest fear is that we go back to the old normal. My highest hope is that we revalue and invest in the kinds of things that make health possible and that make health systems function. So I want to see governments looking seriously at investing and valuing the human resources that we have in the health system, in the public system. I want to see um, a valuing of quality outputs. I want to see a measuring of quality, both in the private sector and in the public sector. Um, so there are a whole lot of institutional shifts that have to happen and I think are absolutely possible. I think there's a huge space for changing the way the system works so that we have a more unified system. It's got to be a system that speaks to quality. And yes. I think it's very important that we have to capitalize on getting citizens involved and hearing their voices. Stephen Reed, same for you, a hope and a fear? Yeah, my hope is that uh, as a society, we uh, come out with a renewed sense of solidarity and the need to collectively address the inequalities uh, right from the richest to the poorest in society for the for the good of us all. Um, my fear is that we would retreat, uh, as Sharon said, into our into our holes, into our, our our previous roles without realizing the the opportunity that this crisis gives us uh, to think in a new way and to uh, to really use the framework that's been put on the table by the NHI legislation. Uh, to take it forward um, in, a, in, in a constructive way. It's, it's going to be hard, painstaking work, but I think it can be done. 
Professor Stephen Reed, thanks very much for giving us your time. Professor Sharon Fond, thanks for joining us on Beyond Corona. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.